Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Genesis 47, uh, Genesis chapter 47 for our time of study in God's Word this morning. We're doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Genesis, and as we continue in our series through this book, we come this morning to Genesis chapter 47, verse 13. My goal today is to just cover verses 13 through 26, and the title of the message today is Joseph's Wise Administration. Joseph's Wise Administration. I'm going to start off on a really risky note here. A couple weeks ago, our, our president, Donald Trump, made a very significant uh, decision that has massive ramifications. It was a decision that involved Syria and Turkey and the Kurds. And in his tweet about his decision, he said these words in the tweet, if Turkey does anything that I, in my great and unmatched wisdom, Consider to be off limits, I will totally destroy and obliterate the economy of Turkey. My great and unmatched wisdom, he says. Perhaps you agree that our president has great and unmatched wisdom. I won't ask for a raise of hands. Perhaps you don't agree that our president has great and unmatched wisdom. I won't ask for a raise of hands. But I know that all of us would agree that having someone with great and unmatched wisdom leading our country would be a good thing, right? Someone whose wisdom is so great that they can handle the thorniest problems and lead our country through those matters in a way that leaves everyone blessed in the end. But that rarely happens in our country Throughout the history of our nation, presidential candidates have always made many bold promises, and we've been hearing many bold promises in recent weeks. But once a person becomes president, they often find that fulfilling those promises proves to be much more complicated than what they had thought. People believe the candidate's promises, so they vote for the candidate. But then often they are left disappointed because, as they say, the presidency almost always proves greater than the man. Well, this was absolutely not the case with regard to Joseph's rule in Egypt, as we're going to see in our passage today. When Joseph was 37 years old, he was called before Pharaoh, we have seen, to interpret two troubling dreams that Pharaoh had dreamed. And Joseph provides the interpretation for those dreams and tells Pharaoh that what those dreams mean is that there will be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of severe famine. And then Joseph gives Pharaoh the following counsel in Genesis 41, beginning in verse 33. He says, now let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. 
Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. That's a 20% tax. Then let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it. Let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine, which will occur in the land of Egypt so that the land will not perish during the famine. Now, Pharaoh had just asked Joseph to tell me what my dreams mean. Joseph goes out on a limb and says, let me give you this counsel. Well, Pharaoh loved Joseph's proposal that he makes to him. Joseph had counseled Pharaoh to find a man discerning and wise. And Pharaoh hears what Joseph says and then points to Joseph and says to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? That's Pharaoh's way of saying, can we find another man like this who has such great and unmatched wisdom? Pharaoh then appoints Joseph to be his vice regent over Egypt and gives him everything that he needs to do his job. And Joseph immediately gets to work. And then we're told in Genesis chapter 41, beginning in verse 47, during the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he, Joseph, gathered all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt and placed the food in the cities. He placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. Thus Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. So the first seven years of Joseph's administration are a smashing success. But what about the next seven years? After all, it's easy to handle things when you're running surpluses. But what about when famine hits? Well, listen to what is said beginning in Genesis 41, verse 53. The text says, When the seven years of plenty, which had been in the land of Egypt, came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said, then there was famine in all the lands, But in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, you shall do. When the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. And the people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. And that, guys, is how Genesis or this account here ends, how Genesis 41 ends. If the only thing that you are interested in reading about is how Joseph oversees this particular situation through the full seven years of plenty and then famine, then the next five plus chapters of Genesis, Genesis 42 and following, 
are a rather large parentheses that tells us about Joseph's brothers coming from Canaan into Egypt to buy food and how they ended up being reunited with Joseph and how Joseph worked it out that they would all come to Egypt and live under his care in the land of Goshen, which was in Egypt. How Pharaoh himself invites Jacob and his family to come and live in Egypt. How he very graciously gives Jacob and his family the very best land in Egypt to dwell in. And we saw how Jacob is so grateful for Pharaoh's kindness that he comes into Pharaoh's presence and speaks two blessings over Pharaoh. And with Jacob and his family now settled in the land of Goshen, the writer of Genesis now, beginning in verse 13, picks up the story of how Joseph successfully leads the people of Egypt through the full seven years of famine, resulting in the prosperity of Pharaoh and the survival of the Egyptians and leaving the Egyptian people by the end of this account in verse 25, saying to Joseph, you have saved our lives. As we look at this passage this morning, we're going to break it down in this way. We'll observe four acts of Joseph and the exercise of his wise rule over Egypt through the seven years of famine. Four acts of Joseph in the exercise of his rule over Egypt through the seven years of famine. And the first act of Joseph that we see, let's say it this way, is that Joseph gives food to the Egyptians in exchange for money. Keep in mind that the events of Genesis 42 through 45 happened during the second year of this seven-year famine with five more years of famine to go. So as we come into this passage for today, uh, we are in what might be the third year of the famine, though it is impossible to pin down precisely. But observe what is said in verse 13. Now, there was no food in all the land because the famine was very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And because of the severe conditions of this famine, people were coming to Joseph to buy food from the storehouses. And as they did so from day to day and month to month and even year to year, the end result is that in verse 14, Joseph gathered all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. You might want to underline those words. Joseph gathered all the money, all the money. And he brings that money into Pharaoh's house. There were no doubt administrative expenses involved in maintaining and distributing the food from the storehouses. But any money beyond these overhead costs, Joseph brings that money into Pharaoh's house. He doesn't embezzle any of it and keep it for himself. He works for Pharaoh and he brings the money from the people of Egypt into Pharaoh's house. At the same time, he's providing the Egyptian people the grain that they are paying a fee for. So the people are getting the grain that they need and 
money is flowing into Pharaoh's treasury. It's actually important, I think, that Joseph provide this grain from the storehouses to the people of Egypt in exchange for some kind of fair fee. Having people pay for their allotment of grain honors the humanity of the recipients. Handouts, free handouts over a long period of time, as we all know, can spoil a person's character and feed a sense of entitlement. If all the citizens of Egypt are receiving handouts without ever having to pay anything, it would have bankrupted the Egyptian government and rewarded laziness and short-sightedness, which would have led to other dehumanizing consequences. And Joseph avoids these negative consequences by having people pay what was no doubt a reasonable fee in exchange for the grain that they receive. Eventually, though, a point arrives when people run out of money to pay for the grain, causing the payment method for the grain to have to change. This brings us to the next act of Joseph and the exercise of his wise rule over Egypt through these seven years of famine. Number two, Joseph gives food to the Egyptians in exchange for their livestock. Observe what happens in verse 15. When the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food for why should we die in your presence for our money is gone. Now they're asking for a handout and Joseph won't give them a handout, but neither will he leave them without a way to obtain food that they desire. Observe what Joseph does in verse 16. Then Joseph said, give up your livestock and I will give you food for your livestock since your money is gone. Their livestock obviously was a commodity that had monetary value. Just like nowadays, a vehicle that we may own has monetary value. When we buy a car, for example, from a car dealership, the dealership will often have us pay for that with currency. But the dealership will also let us trade in our old vehicle toward the purchase as well. They inspect our old car and then they assign a monetary value to the old vehicle. And then that amount is viewed as payment toward the purchase of the car that we're wanting to buy. And that's what Joseph is essentially saying to the people of Egypt here. He's saying, I notice that you guys have cars and motorcycles and scooters and tractors. How about you start trading those things in and pay for your allotment of food that way? Well, the people like that idea. Look at verse 17. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses. By the way, this is the first time horses show up in the Bible, if you love horses. And they're being traded away for food. (laughs) So Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses and the flocks and the herds and the donkeys. And he fed them. He fed the people 
with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. Now, notice the words that year. It's tough to know exactly what to do with that that we see at the end of verse 17. We don't know what that year is that's being referred to. It's possible that we're now in the fourth or the fifth or even possibly the sixth year of the famine here. Whatever the year is, Joseph promises the people saying, I will give you food for your livestock since your money is gone. And he proved true to his word. He obviously would have assigned some monetary value for each animal given and then determined what that equaled in terms of a quantity of food. He would then see to it that the people receive the appropriate amount of food in exchange for the animals that they are bringing in. We're told in verse 17 that Joseph gave them food in exchange for the animals and that he fed them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. On the surface, the language here seems to suggest that the Egyptians handed over their animals to Joseph and they got grain in return. So they bring their donkey and say goodbye to their donkey. It's gone and they get food in exchange. If that's how the transaction happened, then that means that the Egyptian government would have needed to set aside a bunch of land in which they would hold and care for all of the livestock being brought in from around the country. That would be a monstrously huge task. Because of how cumbersome doing that might have been, some writers suggest that what the people are doing here is they're mortgaging their livestock in order to obtain grain. And this is possible. The language here would fit that. And if this is what they did, then the government becomes the lien holder on everyone's livestock, even though the livestock was allowed to stay on the Egyptians' property and be cared for by the people. Kind of like in a mortgage type of situation nowadays where we live in the house that the bank owns until we pay it off. The truth is we don't know specifically how this exchange happens, but however it happens, month leads on to month throughout the length of that year until eventually the Egyptians run out of livestock and animals to use as payment or as collateral for the food. Eventually there comes a point where there's no more livestock and horses and donkeys for people to bring in in order to obtain food a fact which leaves people feeling very desperate and looking for something else that they can do to get food from Joseph. In fact, they come up with their own idea of what they can now do to provide in order to obtain food. And this brings us to the third act of Joseph as he executes his wise rule over Egypt through the full seven years of famine. Number three, Joseph gives food to the Egyptians in exchange for their land and their lives. Observe what is said beginning in verse 18. When that year was ended, they came to him. The people came to Joseph the next year and said to him, 
We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent and the cattle are all my Lord's. There is nothing left for my Lord except our bodies and our lands. They're saying the the only thing we have not paid you yet is ourselves and our land. And they're saying that they're now even willing to pay that. Look at verse 19. They say, why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land, by us and our land for food, and we and our land will be slaves to Pharaoh? Please note that Joseph is not the one who is offering these terms to the people. The people are offering these terms to Joseph so that they can obtain food from the storehouses. That's how dire their situation is, and that's how desperate they are. But notice something else that they ask in verse 19. They say, so give us seed that we may live and not die and that the land may not be desolate. It's interesting now that they are wanting seed to plant their fields with. This almost certainly means that they are reaching the end of the seven years of famine and their request for seed also indicates that the people of Egypt believed the word of Joseph that this famine will be coming to an end at the end of seven years, at which time they know we're going to be able to plant seeds and produce a good harvest. So right now they want food for the present and seed to plant in the future. Well, how does Joseph respond to their request? Look at verse 20. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh For every Egyptian sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. Thus the land became Pharaoh's. So the result is that every Egyptian gives up their land to Joseph and Joseph gives them food in the weeks and the months to come, as the text says. And it's clear Joseph does not buy the fields for himself, but for Pharaoh. So ultimately all the land is becoming Pharaoh's. And again, it's possible that the people are just selling their land and then they have to go live somewhere else. But the likelihood is that they are mortgaging their land. The people may still be living on the land just like we may live on a mortgaged property. But the land they're living on has now been mortgaged over to Pharaoh. He has a secured interest in their land. And this would make sense, I think, given the fact that the people are asking for seed also to plant their fields with. What's interesting here is the fact that in Egyptian society, everyone already viewed Pharaoh as their master and viewed themselves as Pharaoh's slaves. And they already viewed their land as belonging to Pharaoh. He can take whatever he wants whenever he wants. He was a god. This is why everyone refers to themselves in Pharaoh's court as your servant, which is the Hebrew word for slave. 
So the upshot is that what everyone already believed to be true in theory is now being made true in reality, in practice. As one writer says, Joseph's economic policy in Genesis 47, 16 through 19 simply made Egypt, in fact, what it always was in theory. The land became Pharaoh's property and its inhabitants, his tenants. This means that it's actually quite generous of Joseph to assign a monetary value to these acts of them giving their lives and their land. That Joseph would say, okay, I appreciate that and we'll assign a monetary value to that and you will receive food in exchange for it. That's actually a gracious thing for Joseph to do. He could have said, no, you're not going to get anything for that. You're already his slaves. Your land already belongs to him. But instead, he receives what they offer, assigns a monetary value to that, and gives them food. Now, observe what is said in verse 21 as Joseph's policy is implemented. The text says, as for the people, he removed them to the cities from one end of Egypt's border to the other. Literally, let's just go with the literal Hebrew here. The Hebrew text, as it stands, says he had them passing through to the cities. This could mean that he's relocating people to the cities for the time being so that everyone is closer to the distribution centers for the food. Or this phrase could simply mean that Joseph had a steady stream of people coming now into the cities to deed their land and themselves over in exchange for food from the distribution centers. Okay? How many of you have, like, the English Standard Version, the ESV? Raise your hand. Do you notice anything different in your text? Um, The ESV... Uh, Verse 21 reads this way, as for the people, he, Joseph, made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. And the New International Version translates this in a pretty similar way. And the reason for this different translation is that the Hebrew word that means to pass through, which is what the New American Standard or is is following and the hebrew word for make a servant of look very similar in hebrew with only a tiny difference in one letter so some translators choose the views the he, uh, to view the hebrew text here as having a corrupted form of the word that means to make a servant of so they translate the text the way that the english standard version and the NIV do. And in favor of that translation, the ancient Greek Septuagint translates this word in the same way that the ESV does. And it's quite possibly the intended meaning here. In verse 23, we're actually going to hear Joseph say to the people, I have bought you and your land for Pharaoh. So it's possible that Verse 21 here is telling us that Joseph is purchasing everyone and making them slaves throughout all of Egypt. I'll let you figure that out. But whatever is happening here, there's no getting around the fact that Joseph is buying the people 
as slaves for Pharaoh because of what Joseph says in verse 23. And this may rub us wrong with our modern sensibilities. But before we fault Joseph for doing what he does here, keep in mind that even in the Old Testament law, if someone owed a debt that they could not pay, that person had the option of selling himself as a slave to the lender. We see that in Leviticus 25, verses 39 and 40. So even in the Old Testament law of God, the lender had every right to let the borrower become his slave in this kind of situation. However, the law of the Old Testament required that the lender treat his slave with respect and to treat him as a hired man who works for him rather than as a slave. And we'll see how Joseph actually lives out the spirit of this law long before it was even written. So in the Old Testament law, there, there's actually a sale that happens. Someone gives themselves as a slave to a master whom they owed a debt to that they could not pay. And that person receives them as a slave, but then treats them respectfully as a hired person and treats them fairly. So the people of Egypt offer their land and themselves to Joseph as slaves to Pharaoh so that they can receive food that they need from the storehouses. It's either that, guys, or they die. And so Joseph allows them to do this. And the only exception to all of this was the priests. Look at verse 22. Only the land of the priest he did not buy. For the priest had an allotment from Pharaoh and they lived off the allotment which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. It seems that the priests were already on government payroll for the religious services that they perform. So it seems that Pharaoh is treating the priest as his own family and he's providing for them. So they would be able to keep their money and keep their livestock and their land. And notice in the text that it is said that the priest had an allotment from whom? From Pharaoh. And they lived off the allotment which Pharaoh gave them. It seems that Joseph handled everyone else. But the Pharaoh reserved the right to provide for the priest on these terms the way that he wanted to. I am pretty confident Joseph did not like the Egyptian religion. I'm sure he didn't like the special treatment that Pharaoh gave to these pagan priests. But Joseph is not in charge here. He's second in command, serving a pagan ruler in a pagan society. And there are limits to what Joseph is able to do. His job given to him by Pharaoh is to handle the distribution of food to the people and so that's where Joseph's focus stayed. He lets the people sell their land and themselves to Pharaoh, and he provides for them food in return. But Joseph doesn't just take people's land away from them and take them as slaves and then leave them as helpless dependents on the government. He actually 
treats them remarkably well and gives them tremendous latitude for self-sufficiency. And this brings us to the fourth and the final act of Joseph as he administrates his wise rule over Egypt through the full seven years of famine. Number four, Joseph gives seed to the Egyptians requiring a 20% tax in return. After it came about that Joseph purchased the last lot of land from the people, observe what he does in verse 23. The text says, Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have today bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you may sow the land. And the fact that Joseph would give them seed to sow the land seems to indicate that the people are still allowed to live on the land that they had deeded over to Pharaoh. Regardless, look at Joseph's instruction to the people in verse 24. He says to them, At the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own for seed of the field and for your food and for those of your households. And as food for your little ones. These are stunning terms. No one in ancient society treated slaves this way. No one said to a slave, Here's my land that you can now sow seed on. I will give you the seed, and I will allow you to keep 80% of all that is produced. And you can do with that 80% as you please. And all you need to do is give to me 20%. In fact, in a slave master kind of contract back in this day, the percentages were typically the opposite. With the master receiving at least 80% and the slave receiving 20% or less, if anything at all. But Joseph doesn't do the normal thing. Instead, he gives the Egyptians a way to provide for themselves, which preserves their human dignity as image bearers of God. And he allows them to keep 80% of everything that they produce. And he assesses a mere 20% tax on what they produce. And as for the 20% tax, commentators say that This is a reasonable tax, even by modern standards. And it's especially reasonable by ancient standards, which sometimes would be as high as 40 or even in some cases, 60%. This 20% tax is amazingly modest when you consider that all the Egyptians would have been dead if Joseph had not administered things the way that he has. Given the desperation of the Egyptian people, they would have probably agreed to giving Pharaoh 99%. With them only keeping 1%. They were so desperate, and yet, wonderfully, Joseph refuses to exploit their desperation. He lets them keep 80% and ask for only 20%. This is very wise and good leadership. How do the people respond? Well, they love Joseph's plan. 
who can complain about this? Look at what they do in verse 25. So they said, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. What they're saying is if being Pharaoh's slaves means that we are saved from death and provided food and now provided seed and we're now able to work the land and keep 80% of what we produce and give only 20% to Pharaoh, then let us be slaves of Pharaoh forever. May we forever find such favor in your sight, Joseph, for this is a happy slavery for us. Remember, guys, that during the seven years of plenty, what was the tax amount? 20%. Before everyone was made slaves, technically, Joseph had them paying a 20% tax during the seven years of plenty, and now they're slaves, and what changes? Nothing. They're still paying a 20% income tax, and the people of Egypt could not have been happier with Joseph's wise and gracious and kind leadership. It was then that Joseph made a law regarding what life under Pharaoh would be like from that day forward. Look at verse 26. Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, valid to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. Only the land of the priests did not become Pharaoh's. Moses' original readers who have left Egypt know what the taxation was like even in their day, which was hundreds of years after Joseph. And Moses wants them to know, hey, that 20% tax, that started under Joseph. It was a tax policy that was so wise and so fair that it is still the law of the land even hundreds of years later. And we'll stop here in verse 26 for today. And we'll pick up in verse 27 next time. But let us please take a moment to just ask a question. And that is why? Why does the writer of Genesis give us this account about how Joseph saved the people of Egypt from starvation and prospered Pharaoh abundantly? Why take the time to share what we've just gone through in the text of Genesis. Is this meaningless information? Some commentators actually think so. Is this secondary to the real plot of Genesis, which is about the people of God? If it's not secondary to the plot of Genesis, then what are these verses doing in Genesis? And what do these verses teach us that God wants us to know? Well, there's a lot, actually, and some of it points us back to the promise of God to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. Let's look at this in Genesis chapter 12, verse three, when God initially called Abraham, God made a promise to Abraham and said, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And here in our passage today, we see Abraham's great-grandson being an agent of life-saving blessing to the whole nation of Egypt. Moses could have just focused in the Genesis account 
on how the family of Jacob came to Egypt through Joseph. And he could have ended the story in verse 12. They settled in Goshen and everything's cool. And who cares about the Egyptians? But Moses' heart is bigger than that. Moses' heart and God's heart is big enough to include the people of Egypt. And Moses wants us to know how God used Joseph to rescue the people of Egypt and bless them. Evidently, the Egyptians are valuable to God. And their lives are worth saving. That God would use Joseph to bless the Egyptians like this and that the writer of Genesis would take the time to share with us how the Egyptians were blessed through Joseph shows us something about the heart of God for all people, for the nations. And this should come as no surprise to us. One day, God is going to send his Messiah to earth. And we see this revealed in the New Testament who will come and die and be raised from the dead in order to bring salvation and purchase for himself people of every tribe and tongue and nation. After his resurrection from the dead, Jesus, the Messiah, will speak to his disciples and say to them, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. God loves the nations. He cares about the souls of the people of the nations. He cares even about their physical well-being. And we see an early expression of the heart of God here, even in this passage, his heart for the Egyptians. And he blesses them through Joseph and saves their physical lives. But this story is not simply about the blessing of the Egyptian people It's also a story of God blessing Pharaoh, blessing Pharaoh's house. In verse 14, we're told that Joseph took the money that the people used to buy grain and he brought the money into Pharaoh's house. In verse 20, we're told Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. At the end of verse 20, thus the land became Pharaoh's. And we also hear The people saying in this passage that we've looked at today that we will be slaves for Pharaoh. You see, this isn't just the story of the rescue of the Egyptians through Joseph. It's also the story of the prospering of Pharaoh through Joseph. And why would God want us to see that? Well, in Genesis 12, God made a promise to Abraham saying, I will bless those who bless you. And we all saw in the previous chapters how Pharaoh had blessed Jacob, who was Abraham's grandson, and Jacob's family with his generous invitation for them to come and to live in the land of Egypt. And even with Pharaoh's decision to give to Jacob and his family the very best of the land of Egypt to live in. As one writer says, the Pharaoh of the Joseph story comes across as a caring, magnanimous, and charitable individual who is a genuine blessing to Jacob and his family. So think about the chain of events that have happened in Genesis in the recent chapters. Pharaoh is good to Joseph. 
He invites Joseph's family to come and live in Egypt. He gives them the best of the land. He's good to Joseph. So clearly, Pharaoh is in the category of those who have blessed Abraham and blessed his descendants. So what happens next? Well, we saw last week how Joseph brings his dad into Pharaoh's presence And Jacob twice speaks a blessing over Pharaoh. In verse 7, Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Verse 10, Jacob blessed Pharaoh. So Jacob speaks this blessing into Pharaoh. And what happens next in the story? It's what we've looked at today. Pharaoh's nation is saved from starvation. Money pours into Pharaoh's house to the point where he has all the money. All the livestock become his, all the land becomes his, and the people become fully his, and they're delighted to be under his rule. Wow. That double blessing that Jacob spoke over Pharaoh must have been a powerful blessing indeed. But that's part of God's promise to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you. And this Pharaoh is a powerful example of how true that promise is. However, if you keep reading and you read into the early chapters of the book of Genesis, you'll learn about another Pharaoh who will arise and oppress Abraham's descendants. And God is going to curse and destroy that Pharaoh and smite his whole land with plagues. God is watching And cares very deeply how people treat his kids. And he blesses those who bless them. And he curses those who curse his kids. Just as he promised Abraham. And we see Pharaoh being blessed. In fulfillment of the promise of God to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. But that's not all that we can observe in this passage we've looked at today. Let me say something else that we can observe here, and that is that good government is a blessing, right? Can we not infer that from our passage today? This text reminds us of the fact that good government can be a great blessing to its citizens. Sometimes we can have a cynical view of government. There are some people who idolize the government And think it's the solution to all of our problems. And if there's any problem anywhere, it's like that requires a government solution. But there are also some people at the other extreme who demonize the government and think it destroys everything it touches. And they're like, please don't get the government involved in solving this problem. Well, that may be true in some cases. But what we see here in this passage is an example of how government can be a source of great good to its people. Without the Egyptian government creating this savings plan for the seven years of plenty and then a distribution plan during the seven years of famine, the people of Egypt would not have made it through the seven years of famine. A government program that is well run by a wise person can actually be a good thing. Which means that we should want as many wise and godly people serving in positions 
of government as possible. This is part of why we should exercise our right to vote as Christians and why it's healthy and wholesome for a Christian to serve even in our secular government. Our passage today provides a clear demonstration of how a godly person can be a great blessing even while serving in a secular or pagan government. Joseph is a righteous man living in a pagan society. His boss is a pagan ruler who thinks he's a god. The religion of Egypt is a pagan religion. Yet we see Joseph serving beautifully in such a role, being a genuine blessing to his pagan boss and to the people of Egypt, even though there are limits on what Joseph is allowed to do. I'm sure Joseph would have loved to have ended the Egyptian religion and replace it with the worship of the true God. But he couldn't do that because he's not in charge. But he works within the lanes that have been marked out for him. And he glorifies God and how he does his job in an imperfect situation in a pagan world, working in a pagan government in a way that brings blessing to people. And that's what many of you in this congregation do as you work in some form of government work, whether you work for some city or county or state or federal agency, we thank God for what you do. And we thank you for your service. Some of you work in the public schools. I read recently that over one-third of all public school teachers are evangelical Christians. I don't know how true that is or not, but I, I don't find that surprising. Some of you work in the public schools that are a government agency, essentially. There are restrictions put on you as to what you are allowed to do and not do. But God gives you wisdom, and many of you are seeking to glorify him in the lanes that you're able to operate in, and you are a light, and you are a blessing. And we're so glad that you are in that spot, rather than someone who hates the Lord. I'm going to take a huge risk and draw another lesson from this passage today. Can we talk taxes for a minute? Uh, we can observe here in this passage that taxation is a meaningful part of good government. For the Egyptian government to do its job well, it needed to receive a 20% tax during the seven years of plenty. Joseph also implements this same tax at the end of the seven years of famine. Once again, this is a reasonable tax by any standard, but it teaches us that taxes, guys, are not an evil thing. In Romans 13, the Apostle Paul says, For because of this, you, speaking to Christians, also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. 
I'm pretty sure personally that our government is too big and that there are excessive taxes. But I also firmly believe that all taxes are not bad. And it's an honor to pay them. We should be thankful for any genuine good that our government does that our taxes pay for. From providing us fire and police protection to military services that protect our freedoms to roads that we drive on and regulations and services that help our society to run in an orderly fashion. When was the last time you just took a little bit of time to think about all the ways you are benefited by the imperfect government that we live under? Having said that about taxes, we should also learn that governments do well to leave as much as possible in the hands of its people. As we see Joseph allowing the people to do here, allowing them to keep 80% of what they produce and to use however they saw fit, however they wanted to use it. A good government should not be asking, how much can we take from the people without them revolting and killing us? Instead, it should be asking, how much money can we keep in the hands of our people? Such a principle honors human dignity and ultimately is good for human flourishing in a society. Those are some things I think we can glean from our text today. But most importantly, let's go back and ponder what the Egyptians said to Joseph in verse 25. They come to him after all that he had done, and they said, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. These words resonate with me. They should resonate, I think, with all of us, because we can say something very similar to Jesus Christ, who is a greater Savior to us than Joseph was to the Egyptians. We can look at God's most amazing plan of salvation. We can look upon how God perfectly executed that plan to save us. We can ponder how God sent his son into the world to live the life that we have failed to live and to die on the cross, the death that we all deserve to die so that through his shed blood on the cross, we can have salvation and atonement for our sins. We can ponder how God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his own right hand and then calls upon us to believe in Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. We can ponder how God blesses all who believe in Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. All of heaven he takes and says, it's yours. And he accepts us into relationship with himself. He forgives us of our sins He clothes us with the very righteousness of Jesus and he makes us useful in his kingdom. He gives us so much wealth in Christ to do with as we please in service to him. And all of us can rightly bow before Jesus being deeply moved by this amazing plan of salvation and all this wealth that is given to us And we could say to Jesus, you have saved our lives. 
let us, you have let us find favor in your sight and we will happily be your slaves forever. By the way, you may hear that and say, Pastor Mountain, I don't like this slavery talk. I'm nobody's slave. Oh, yes, you are. Everybody is somebody's slave. You are either a slave of God or you are a slave of Satan. You are either a slave of God or you are enslaved to various lusts and pleasures whose bidding you must do. If you are not a slave to God, the Bible teaches that you are a slave of sin. And sin is a cruel master that takes and takes and takes and only gives corruption and deeper bondage and guilt and death in return. But we who have believed in Jesus Christ have been made free from that slavery to sin and we have become slaves to God, slaves to Jesus Christ, slaves to righteousness. And every one of us who has been saved through Christ should all come before the Lord Jesus every day and say, Jesus, you have saved my life. You have saved my soul. Thank you for the favor that I always have in God's sight through your merit alone. I will happily be your slave forever. If you cannot speak that way to Jesus, it's a good indication that you've never truly been saved. And I would call upon you today to come to Jesus and to believe in him and call upon him as your Lord, as your master, as your savior, and then spend the rest of your life praising him for his amazing salvation enjoying his favor and experiencing the truest freedom that is found inside of slavery to him. Jesus is a good savior who is worth believing in. He is the savior in whom are hidden all the treasures of amazing wisdom and knowledge. And he is the only savior who truly has great and unmatched wisdom. Amen. Let's pray to him. Lord, I pray that if there's any here today who whose hearts you are touching just through the worship, the songs that we have sung, the scripture that we have been looking at, that you would touch their hearts and draw them to yourself and save them even right now in this very moment. Empower them, Lord, to call upon the powerful name of Jesus. That they would know that regardless of my sins, as bad as they are, there is atonement in Jesus. And wherever their affections have been up to this moment that they their heart would be stolen by the beauty of Jesus. 
and that they would want him above all else and understand how beautiful and good it is to live under his wise rule. Help us, Lord, to, as believers, to behave as lights in this crooked and perverse generation. We pray for our government leaders that you would give them extraordinary wisdom for these extraordinary times in which we live on a federal and state and local and county level. Lord, bless them with your wisdom thwart the purposes of evil and cause a flourishing of righteousness. And for the people in this congregation and from any congregation throughout this country, Lord, that work in various government agencies, help them to blaze as shining lights for Jesus Christ in the spot where they find themselves right now. And though the world and our government may put restrictions on them, we know that you're power, more powerful than any restrictions and that you can, you can work in amazing ways, Lord. And you have through the people of this congregation and many other congregations. And so we just pray, Lord, that you would encourage the hearts of all those that work for our government, that you would bless them, that you would empower them to serve faithfully for the good of our society and for the glory of the Lord Jesus. And help us all to be good citizens of this nation that is so woefully imperfect and yet has much of your beauty in it. Help us to be thankful for what we ought to be thankful for and speak with a prophetic voice regarding those things that are truly evil, but that we would show honor to whom honor is due, whether that be to those that are in positions of public office and that we would also show honor to our fellow man as image bearers of God. And in this day in which we live that is so divided and filled with hate on every side, Lord, help us to show a different way that bears the marks of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ourselves deserve your judgment We've confessed our own evils. We're humbled by the amazing grace you've given to us. We have a heart for those who are lost in foolishness. And we see, hey, that's where I was once. And God loved me. And so I'm going to be an agent of God's love and God's grace and God's mercy in that person's life. Whatever lane each of us are in as citizens. Help us to glorify you and be lights. And I thank you for the ways that the people of this congregation already are doing that. And I just ask that you would help us all to excel still more for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bless us, Lord, as we give of this offering to you. Receive these funds. Do much with, with all that is given in this offering for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray and all God's people said.